For the communities along Interstate 70, a 2,100-mile artery of asphalt and concrete moving the lifeblood of American commerce from Maryland to Utah, the highway is many times more trouble than it's worth. Although the road provides a direct link between some of the American heartland's major cities, Baltimore, Wheeling, Columbus, Indianapolis, St. Louis, Kansas City, Topeka, and Denver, as well as countless small, anonymous communities. The economic benefits of being located along a major thoroughfare are offset by the predators who also use I-70 for their own sinister purposes. One of the worst of these predators, Douglas Belt, was a truck driver. He began attacking women in 1989 in the Kansas communities that dot the interstate, stopping in 1996 when he was arrested for burglary. He racked up a series of convictions for other violent crimes, but was paroled in 2001 and continued his violent ways. In 2002, Belt decapitated a 43-year-old Wichita woman. For his crimes, Belt received the death penalty. Before Belt, there was the I-70 killer, a maniac who police say targeted women working alone in stores located near the highway. That killer is thought to have slain seven women between 1992 and 1994. An eighth murder victim, a terrote Indiana man who wore a ponytail and an earring, may have been mistaken for a woman. One woman survived the attempt on her life. The same 22 caliber pistol was used in six of the nine shootings during the early 90s spree. Police say this pistol was also the murder weapon in the deaths of five women in Missouri, Indiana, and Kansas, and the terrote man. Although authorities have identified a person of interest in those cases, the killings formally remain open and unsolved. The communities touched by the havoc wreaked by desperate criminals on the run or sociopaths out hunting for human prey have their own name for I-70. They call it America's Sewer Pipe. After Daniel Rometta killed his way through rural Kansas in 1985, a gas station owner at the intersection of Kansas 25 and I-70 summed up the feelings of the people who lived near the highway for reporters. You just don't know what's coming down the sewer pipe next. Rometta and his companions, some call them hostages while others say they were accomplices, cut a swath of carnage across the south and then descended on the 400-person hamlet of Grainfield, Kansas, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, leaving death, pain, and misery in their wake. Daniel Eugene Rometta and Lisa Dunn met at a party in Traverse City, Michigan in December 1984. They moved in together shortly after their fateful meeting, although at first glance, they were an unlikely pair. Rometta was the product of alcoholic parents and had been maltreated much of his life, while Dunn was, until shortly before they met, a well-cared-for child of an apparently loving middle-class home who excelled in classes and seemed to be on her way to graduating high school, attending college, and building a successful life for herself. Rometta was first adjudicated as a delinquent when he was 13 years old, although there had been numerous run-ins with the law and authority figures before his first appearance in a courtroom. He was of below-average intelligence, had a violent temper, and reportedly had only two goals in life, to kill a cop and to become a hitman. Whether it was heredity, environment, or dumb luck, Danny Rometta was just plain bad. His first adult conviction came for felony breaking and entering, earning him a four-year stretch in a Michigan prison. Slightly built, he was, pound for pound, a tough character who managed to earn enough tickets in prison to spend the majority of his first sentence in the manhole at Marquette, 
Michigan's maximum security facility. Even before she met Danny Rometta, Lisa Dunn was uncomfortable with the role life assigned her as a college-bound honor student. Her grades slipped, she experimented with drugs and alcohol, and she ran away from home to Florida. Dunn managed to hold it together long enough to graduate from high school and was taking some college courses when she and Rometta hooked up. He was 27, and she was 18. Rometta quickly established control over Dunn. In prison, Rometta managed to become a leader of several prisoner protests, which attests to his apparently magnetic personality. In a profile of Rometta, the Detroit News likened him to Charles Manson, crediting him with the ability to control vulnerable people. After he gets them in trouble, then he blackmails them to get them in further, the news quoted one of Rometta's former acquaintances. Another of the vulnerable people who fell under Rometta's control in the cold winter of 1984-1985 was Mark Anthony Walter, the 18-year-old son of a northern Michigan farmer who had recently moved out on his own. Walter, a former altar boy, was well-liked by those who knew him and had never been in any serious trouble. He was a hard-working young man with a full-time job and a friend of Lisa Dunn's from school. When the three of them set out in late January 1984 for a Florida vacation, it's unlikely that even in their darkest nightmares did Dunn or Walter envision how the trip would end. There are conflicting stories about how the 357 handgun belonging to Lisa Dunn's father ended up in Danny Rometta's possession. One account states that Dunn, when she ran away to Florida as a 17-year-old, took the gun for protection. Another version has Rometta convincing Dunn to steal the weapon. Regardless, the trio probably wasn't long on the road when Mark Walter and Lisa Dunn realized that Rometta wasn't simply planning a casual trip to Walt Disney World. Rometta quickly put the gun to use in a convenience store holdup in Copamish, Michigan. They had pooled some of their resources to bail Rometta out of jail, where he had been taken after smashing a car window in a drunken rage. Somewhere along I-75, Dunn and Walter learned the true extent of Rometta's psychopathy. Around the same time, Rometta began beating Dunn. She would later testify about how he forced them to play Russian roulette with a pistol and how he picked out her clothes and pawned her belongings for money. When Dunn told him she wanted to return to Michigan, Rometta threatened her life and the lives of her family. Dunn would later testify that Rometta, who never left her alone with Walter, told her that if she tried to leave him in a public place, he would kill everyone around them. Walter and Dunn, fearing for their lives, agreed that one of them would remain awake at all times. Inexplicably, during the time she spent on the road with Rometta, Dunn sent letters and postcards home telling everyone how much fun she was having. On February the 8th, 1985, Rometta, armed with a stolen 357 Magnum, robbed a Tenneco gas station in Ocala. After the clerk handed over the $52 in the register, Rometta opened fire, shooting Merle Chet Reeder twice in the head and twice in the stomach. Reeder, a 60-year-old loner with no known family or close friends, died instantly. From Ocala, the trio headed west, surfacing again in Wascorn, Texas, an oil town of fewer than 2,000 people on Interstate 20, just across the state line from Louisiana. Two days after Chet Reeder was slain, Rometta, Walter, and Dunn entered a Wascomb gas station, where 18-year-old Camilla Carroll was finishing up her Sunday evening shift. When he finished emptying the store's cash register, Rometta ordered Carroll outside and took her, Dunn, and Walter into a wooded area about 300 yards from the gas station. 
Rometta then ordered the terrified teenager to walk away from the group. Taking aim with a pistol, Rometta yelled for Carol to begin running, which she did. As the girl ran, he opened fire, striking her once in each leg. Carol crashed to the ground, her legs collapsing from the force of the slugs. Rometta walked up to her as she lay writhing on the ground and proceeded to empty the remaining shots into her stomach. Leaving Carol to die in the woods, Rometta, Walter and Dunn got back in their car and drove away with approximately $400. The group hadn't counted on Carol's determination to live. With five slugs in her body, she managed to crawl a quarter mile down the road and stop a passing car. She was taken to a hospital in Shreveport while the desperate trio headed north to Arkansas and another date with murder. Just south of I-40 in northwest Arkansas is the small town of Mulberry, which, in 1985, was a quiet community of around 1,500 people. Rometta, Walter, and Dunn chauffeured death into town at about 8 p.m. on February the 11th, while 42-year-old Linda Marvin was working at Bob's Grocery on US-64. Bob's Grocery was near an off-ramp for I-40, and several witnesses saw two men exit a car that was later identified as belonging to Mark Walter. The two men entered the store. Inside, the gunman bought some items, and when Linda opened the register to give him change, he opened fire and shot her ten times with a 22 caliber pistol. She was dead at the scene. Rometta would later testify that he purchased the second firearm and enlisted the help of a wino to buy the bullets. The killer and his accomplice cleaned out the register and fled the store, leaving behind the change Linda had placed on the counter. The haul was about $500. Although they didn't know it, as Rometta, Dunn, and Walter drove northwest away from Crawford County, Arkansas, fate was directing their course. The group had already left a trail of death during their odyssey of mayhem through the south, but what was behind them would pale in comparison to what lay ahead in Kansas. The day before Valentine's Day, 1985, the killers crossed into Kansas, apparently on their way to Colorado where Rometta had relatives. On I-135 north of Wichita, the group picked up a hitchhiker, James C. Hunter Jr., a Missouri roofer who was looking for a ride back to his home in Amerit, Missouri, after a trip to Texas. Walter was driving at the time, Dunn was seated in the middle of the front seat, and Rometta was seated next to her. With Hunter in the back seat, the group continued north. Somewhere along the 250-mile trip from Wichita to the tiny off-ramp community of Grainfield in central Kansas, Rometta showed Hunter the pair of handguns he was carrying. Testimony later revealed that the 22 had apparently jammed and was inoperable, and Rometta gave it to the hitchhiker to repair, which Hunter did. James Hunter told authorities later that he asked to be dropped off at the intersection of I-135 and I-70, which was consistent with his claim that he was attempting to hitch home to Missouri. Instead, Rometta refused to let him leave and began talking about a previous hitchhiker the group had picked up and how much he regretted not taking advantage of the opportunity to kill that rider. As if to punctuate his statement, Rometta fired three rounds from the 22 pistol out the window as Walter drove through the Kansas fields. To further intimidate Hunter, as they pulled into Selena, Rometta pulled some 357 shells from his pocket and asked Hunter if he thought the shells would be powerful enough to kill him if he shot Hunter with the Magnum. Shortly after 2 p.m., the group pulled off I-70 at the Grainfield exit and drove into the gravel parking lot of Stuckey's Restaurant, a popular spot for students on their way home from the nearby high school. 
The restaurant was empty except for manager Larry McFarland. Rometta and at least one other person entered Stuckey's, and when McFarland handed over the $170 in the till, Rometta shot him to death. The killers fled the scene, but not before someone noticed the red and blue car with Michigan plates leaving the restaurant. That witness, a high school student stopping off for a snack before heading home, discovered McFarland's body and called the police. A Kansas Highway Patrol officer reported that a blue and red car was heading west on I-70, and Thomas County Undersheriff Ben Albright heard the call. A typical rural Kansas community, Thomas County was, at the time, home to about 8,600 people, most of whom lived near the county seat, Colby. It was a fertile, flat prairie country, and generally doesn't receive a second glance from the people who zoom by on I-70. If they notice Thomas County at all, it's because, at the county line where Thomas and Sherman counties meet, they have to adjust their clocks between central and mountain time. For Daniel Rometta, Lisa Dunn, Mark Walter, and James Hunter, Thomas County would be their place of reckoning. In a little under an hour, the group would do more to change Thomas County than anyone had ever done in the county's 100-year history. Their cold-blooded acts of violence would drive home, once and for all, the notion of I-70 as a sewer pipe, an unwelcome intrusion into the peaceful way of life in Colby and the other communities of Thomas County. In a matter of minutes, they would change how people felt about outsiders and tempt good Samaritans to become vigilantes. Fate had decided the time had come for Danny Rometta to show the people of Thomas County just how malevolent a man can be. Albright spotted a red and blue car matching the description the highway patrol had broadcast near the Levin-Kansas interchange, which is about 45 miles from the Colorado line. He stopped the vehicle, but before he could take any action, Rometta jumped out of the passenger's side of the car and fired the 357 through the deputy's car. Rometta pulled off four shots, hitting Albright twice, once in the right arm and in the chest. As Albright slumped to the side, lying on the front seat of the cruiser, he recalled later that he expected to die. I just closed my eyes and waited for another shot, he told the Topeka Capital Journal several years later. Inside, Rometta, thinking the shots had done the job, got back into the car and sped off. Before he lost consciousness, Albright watched the car leave I-70 for US-24. He radioed for help and told the dispatcher what had happened. Albright didn't know everything that occurred, and in his semi-conscious state, the officer, who would later testify that he was shot by Hunter, possibly saw Hunter raise the 22 pistol and fire. Except that by all accounts, Hunter was trying to shoot Rometta. Believing that he had just one chance to escape, Hunter tried to shoot Rometta as he returned to the vehicle. Instead, the hitchhiker managed to shoot Dunn in the leg. Rometta knew he had to ditch the car and find new transportation. About 10 minutes after he shot Albright, he directed Walter to drive to a grain elevator nearby. Three men were working that day at the grain elevator. Maurice Christie was inside the shack that served as an office, and 29-year-old Rick Schroeder, a friendly, well-respected father of two toddlers, and Glenn Moore, 55, were outside near Moore's pickup truck when the outlaws roared in. The gang bailed out of Walter's car with guns drawn, forcing Schroeder and Moore into the bed of the truck. Rometta saw Maurice Christie watching through the window of the office, and when Hunter kicked in one of the office windows and Christie turned, Rometta shot him in the back and left him for dead. Years later, Randy Jones, chief of police for Colby, 
reflected on why Rometta took the two men. At the time of the spree, Jones was a Colby patrolman. I'm sure things were happening very fast, and they took them not knowing how they were going to utilize them, Jones said. With Walter again driving, the wounded done, and the panic-stricken hunter in the cab, the gang fled the grain elevator and drove for several minutes before Rometta ordered Walter to stop. Rometta then told Schroeder and Moore that he didn't want or need any hostages and ordered them out of the truck. He told the men to lie down in the road and proceeded to shoot each of them in the back of the head. The law enforcement officers pursuing Rometta and his gang came upon Schroeder and Moore just moments after the killers left the scene. At first, they stopped some distance away from where the two men lay, wondering if it wasn't some kind of trap. I approached them really cautiously because at the time, from a distance, it just looked too perfect the way they were lying there, Jones said. I was really concerned someone was going to roll over and take a shot at me until I got closer and could see the blood. It soon became all too clear that the men were dead. Jones called for support and the hunt for the killers intensified. Across northern Kansas, every law enforcement agency within 50 miles of Grainfield was alert and looking for Rometta and his crew. Closer to the scene of the latest crimes, authorities set up roadblocks, intent on putting a stop to Rometta's brutal killing spree. The killers approached one of the roadblocks, stopped, and turned around. Then what had been a dragnet around some of the most barbarous killers Kansas had seen in 100 years became a chase. The chase ended at a farm about 17 miles north of Colby in Rollins County. The bandits stopped at the farm and jumped from the truck. Rometta and Walter were both armed and firing at police as they ran for cover, witnesses said. When Walter stood up and took a couple of shots at a state trooper, he was shot in the forehead by a reserve officer from Colby's police force. With Walter dead and done wounded, Danny Rometta had managed to take out almost everyone except himself. He continued to fire at police, stopping only when he was shot in the buttocks. Only James Hunter emerged unharmed. Dunn, cradling her arm, nicked by a shotgun blast and wounded by Hunter's earlier shot, screamed at police that they had killed an innocent man, probably referring to the notion that Walter had been an unwilling participant in the ordeal. Then she turned to Rometta. I love you, Danny, she shouted as the pair were being restrained. I love you too, Rometta called back. The fallout from the multi-state killing spree was swift. Law enforcement agencies quickly linked Rometta, Dunn, and Walter to the killings in Florida, Texas, and Arkansas. Prosecutors in the different jurisdictions conferred and came up with a procedure to try the killers in the various states. Danny Rometta had his own ideas. He wanted to die. And soon. That meant he had to get out of Kansas, which had no death penalty at the time. The three surviving criminals were taken to Colby after the shootout and Mark Walter's body was shipped home to his grief-stricken and baffled family in Michigan. The preliminary investigation yielded no answers for his family, and early indicators portrayed Walter as a willing participant in the spree. Rometta claimed Walter murdered Linda Marvin in Arkansas. At the time, there was no evidence to dispute his statements. The trio didn't stay in jail in Colby for long. The bloodbath to which they subjected the small community had sparked a backlash of anger that was unprecedented in recent memory, and for their safety, Sheriff Tom Jones moved Dunn, Hunter, and Rometta several counties away to prevent vigilantes from subjecting them to their own brand of justice. In May 1985, 
Rometta opted to put Kansas behind him and pleaded guilty to the three murders committed in that state. He subsequently waived extradition to Florida, which wanted a shot at him for the slaying of Chet Reader. I want them to pull the switch, the killer said at the time. Many connected to the mayhem concurred with Rometta's ideas. They had a total disregard for life, said Colby Police Chief Mark Spray. Money can't be neglected as some of the motives, but the shootings and killings, why, that's a totally different motive when you get to abduction and killing. Prosecutors in Kansas turned their attention to convicting Lisa Dunn and James Hunter. Dunn's family secured defense counsel for her, but with their limited resources, there was little they could do. The same month the judge accepted Rometta's guilty pleas, he rejected motions from Dunn and Hunter to have their trials moved out of the small community surrounding Levant. The judge also refused to provide funds Dunn sought for psychologists to examine her and testifies an expert witness about hostage syndrome and the compulsion to commit crimes. This type of defense was used by Patty Hurst to explain why she started out as a victim and ended up as a participant. A month later, the pair went on trial for murder. Both defendants presented significant evidence that they had been forced to participate in the spree by Daniel Rometta. Dunn described physical and verbal abuse and threats that left her unable to make rational choices and spot opportunities to escape from his control. During the trial, Rometta, who was serving four consecutive life sentences in Kansas and awaiting extradition to Arkansas, Texas, and Florida, took full responsibility for the spree and said that Dunn and Walter, and later Hunter, were tricked into participating. He said he had planned to kill everyone but Dunn, about whom he hadn't made up his mind. The entire trip, he implied, was a long, drawn-out suicide attempt. The Kansas jury, however, didn't buy Rometta's story, Dunn's claims that she was a hostage, or Hunter's plea that he happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. After 13 hours of deliberation, they returned guilty verdicts against the pair for the murders of Schroeder and Moore. When the jury announced its verdicts, Dunn's head dropped to the table and she began to sob. Hunter, who spent a grand total of six hours in Daniel Rometta's company, from the time he was picked up as a hitchhiker until the time he was arrested, simply grimaced. Lisa Dunn and James Hunter were each sentenced to two life terms for the felony murder convictions, two life terms for the aggravated kidnapping convictions, 15 years to life for aggravated battery of a law enforcement officer, 15 years to life for aggravated robbery, and five to 20 years for aggravated battery and quickly disappeared into the Kansas correctional system. There was a brief scuffle between Kansas and Arkansas over Dunn's extradition because Kansas's governor adamantly opposed the death penalty and wouldn't send her to face a capital murder charge. But most of the attention for the next several years was focused on the appeals she and Hunter launched shortly after their convictions. Hunter argued that the trial court erred when it refused to give the jury specific instructions on how compulsion can mitigate a person's guilt. Most laws that provide for the defense of compulsion stem from the age-old legal belief that a person, when faced with a choice between suffering death or serious bodily harm and committing some lesser crime, should not be punished for committing the lesser offense. Under Kansas law, the coercion or duress must be present, imminent, and impending, and of such a nature as to induce a well-grounded apprehension of death or serious bodily injury if the act is not done. The doctrine of coercion or duress cannot be invoked as an excuse by one who had a reasonable opportunity to avoid doing the act without undue exposure to death or serious bodily harm. In addition, the compulsion must be continuous, 
and there must be no reasonable opportunity to escape the compulsion without committing the crime. Additionally, the common law does not allow a compulsion defense when a person is accused of murder because, in the words of one legal treatise, when confronted by a choice between two evils of equal magnitude, the individual ought to sacrifice his own life rather than escape by the murder of an innocent. Hunter, who was charged with a felony murder, that is, a killing that occurred during the course of the commission of a felony, argued that he was entitled to use a compulsion defense to excuse his conduct because he was forced to choose between his own death and the kidnapping, not the killing, of Moore and Schroeder. The judge in his trial disagreed and did not include instructions to the jury about compulsion. In July 1987, the Kansas Supreme Court handed down its decision on Hunter's appeal, overturning his convictions and ordering a new trial, at which time he would be allowed to offer the compulsion defense. The court reasoned that if compulsion is available as a defense to the underlying felony, it must also be available as a defense to the murder committed by someone else that accompanied the felony. Kansas prosecutors quickly moved to retry James Hunter, but after the defense presented the evidence of Rometta's abuse and the judge delivered the required instructions about compulsion, the jurors returned a not guilty verdict. Hunter had little time to enjoy his newfound freedom, however. Four days after his acquittal, he suffered a fatal heart attack brought on, his father told the press, by the stress of the retrial. Lisa Dunn's appeals to the Kansas judicial system were less successful, and her convictions withstood all of her challenges at the state level. To the appellate judges in Kansas, the fact that Dunn had ample opportunity during the spree to leave Rometta, and his threats were not continuous, indicated that she was not, like Hunter, compelled to commit the crimes. The court held Dunn's own words against her. He still did treat me nice at times, but he'd always made sure the threat was known to me, that he'd be nice, you know, he could be nice to me if I was behaving, she testified. But if I didn't behave, you know, he wasn't going to be because, you know, like if I'd smartmouth him real bad or something, I might get a slap or whatever he felt like at the time. It depends on his mood. He's really moody. The High Court also rejected Dunn's arguments that had she been able to bring in an expert to talk about the hostage syndrome, the outcome of the trial might have been different. Successfully presenting a hostage syndrome defense requires that the defendant demonstrate the necessary elements, including prolonged captivity, isolation of and a lack of privacy for the captive, and, most importantly, a breakdown of the captive's personality and establishment of a new psyche in its place. In a strongly worded rejection of Dunn's argument, the court held that the facts do not support Dunn's claim that she was a captive. She was not kidnapped. She went with Rometta voluntarily after stealing a gun for him. She was not guarded round the clock. In fact, there were many times when she was alone or awake while Rometta was asleep. She was not isolated, but stayed with friends in Florida, went to Disney World, and stayed in a number of motels and hotels during the crime spree. She was not subject to brainwashing. It's apparent that Dunn's romantic attachment to Rometta was voluntary. If she was a victim, she was a victim of her own poor judgment. But in a stunning turn of events in 1991, a federal district court judge overturned Dunn's conviction and ordered a new trial. Because she was charged with aiding and abetting Daniel Rometta, her mental state was a key component to her defense, the court ruled and the trial court erred by not providing Dunn with an expert witness. 
The state of Kansas quickly appealed to the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, which upheld the lower federal court ruling. The Tenth Circuit's ruling on compulsion and the battered woman defense significantly reshaped how courts look at battered women who commit crimes. The Dunn decision extends the use of the battered woman syndrome beyond situations in which a defendant uses testimony about the syndrome to justify her actions and relieve her of culpability, wrote Kimberly Kuhn in the Toledo Law Review. Now a defendant may use testimony on the battered woman syndrome to prove her innocence when charged with a specific intent crime. In 1992, Lisa Dunn went on trial a second time. Like James Hunter, this time Dunn was able to present a formidable defense of compulsion, complete with expert testimony about why a battered woman with ample opportunity to flee a hostile environment chooses to stay with her batterer. Like Hunter, this time Lisa Dunn was acquitted of all charges. We're quite disappointed and somewhat surprised about it, said Kansas Assistant District Attorney John Bork, who prosecuted Dunn the second time. I never felt the defendant, in this case, was ever a victim. Dunn remained behind bars, facing an Arkansas capital murder charge in Linda Marvin's killing. In December 1993, she pleaded guilty to one count of hindering apprehension or prosecution and was sentenced to 20 years in prison receiving credit for the time she served in Kansas. By plea agreement, the rest of the sentence was suspended. She returned home to Traverse City and took a job at a center for abused women. Dunn later got work in a psychologist's office. Still emotionally troubled, alcohol and gambling problems followed her. In 1996, she stole more than $8,000 from her employer. In an eerie repeat of earlier events, Dunn and her boyfriend fled to Florida this time, she willingly returned to face prosecution, announcing that they had married and she was pregnant. In 1998, she pleaded guilty to felony embezzlement. Noting that she was undergoing treatment for her addictions and had paid back the money in full, the judge sentenced her to a year in jail and placed her on probation for five years. The state of Arkansas did not ask for her return. During the time Lisa Dunn and James Hunter were appealing their convictions, Daniel Rometta was busy with trials of his own. In 1986, he was extradited from Kansas to Florida and tried for Chet Reader's murder. He didn't put up much of a fight at the time and was quickly convicted and sentenced to die in Old Sparky, Florida's balky electric chair. The next year, Florida sent him to Arkansas, where he was tried and convicted for murder there, again receiving the death penalty. Early on in his incarceration, Rometta made it clear that he didn't want to grow old in prison. In one letter, he wrote, If I don't try for the death penalty, I'll die in some prison. This is why I'm trying to get extradited. In another letter, he stated, I'm going to try for the death penalty if I can. Regardless of the inmate's wishes, the capital punishment process moves slowly. Even so-called volunteers who opt not to pursue every possible avenue of appeal do not go from trial to punishment quickly and most states with death penalty statutes have certain mandatory appellate reviews built into the system. More often than not, brash murderers like Daniel Rometta, who actively seek execution, begin to get cold feet as appellate deadlines pass, and the inevitable long walk to the death chamber grows nearer. Although the Federal Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act has somewhat streamlined the appeals process and limited the number of times a case can be reviewed, there is little to stop a condemned convict with second thoughts from filing an 11th-hour appeal. 
Such was the case for Daniel Rometta after Florida Governor Lawton Chiles set a March 31, 1998 execution date. Rometta probably had many reasons to fight his execution. He had met and married a sympathetic woman, rediscovered his Native American roots, and was a prolific poet, writing about the cruelty of imprisonment and the unfairness of the death penalty. The fact that the last man executed in Florida's electric chair the year before had flames shooting from his head probably motivated him as well. As March 31st grew closer, Rometta and his attorneys pulled out all the stops. In a death row interview, he told a reporter he only pleaded guilty to the killings to save Dunn from execution. I'm a thief and all that, but I'm not a killer, he said. Because the Florida prosecutors used his pleas in Kansas and Arkansas as a basis to seek the death penalty there, he tried to recant his guilty pleas, to no avail. In court papers, he claimed it was all Dunn's doing. Dunn dominated and directed Mr. Rometta during the crime spree, the brief said. On March 30, 1998, 40-year-old Daniel Rometta downed his last meal, which consisted of two 44-ounce ices. He met with his family, attorneys, friends, and his spiritual advisor, and awaited the 7 a.m. execution. He showed no emotion as officials strapped him into the chair and placed the headgear and electrodes on top of his head. Rometta declined to make a final statement, and then the hood was pulled down over his face. In an adjacent room, a black-hooded executioner received the go-ahead from the prison warden and pulled the switch that sent thousands of volts coursing through the killer's body. His muscles tightened, straining against the straps that held him down. In just over 30 seconds, it was over. He was declared dead at 7.12 a.m. Outside the prison in Rayford, Daniel Rometta's spiritual advisor shared his final statement with the crowd. For past actions and events, there is genuine remorse and even greater sorrow that none of it can be undone, the man said, reading from a statement Rometta composed two hours before the execution. I would give 1,000 lifetimes to undo past deeds. If this death brings comfort to the friends and family of those harmed and initiates a real healing process, then justice is truly served for them. Although the statement doesn't reflect it, Rometta reportedly admitted to almost all of the killings that occurred during the spree. He was unable to speak about one that occurred during a drug and alcohol-induced blackout. In Kansas, not far from where trucks rushed by on Interstate 70, reaction to his statement was, for the most part, unforgiving. I could care less what Daniel Rometta says 13 years later, said Colby Police Chief Randall Jones. What lasts with me was how he was that day he took lives here in Kansas. Rick Schroeder's father, John, summed up the paradoxical closure that survivors of crime victims feel when the ultimate punishment is carried out. It takes so long to get something over with, he told reporters. It doesn't sound like he felt sorry for anyone. It sounded like he didn't have any remorse. But when you kill someone, it's not a happy day.